Episode 77 of Music Nerds Unite. This is Scott Floman again with my brother Keith Floman and our buddy Larry Waldman. In this episode, we're doing a draft of the best songs of 1965. And like in our prior recent episodes, we'll each draft five songs apiece via a snake draft. After finishing the 70s year by year song drafts, we were going to do an honorable mention song draft of songs we wish we had picked. But on second thought, we decided to scrap that idea. The pool of songs was just too big, and I know that I was getting a headache thinking about it. You also debated whether to continue on to the 80s or go back to the 60s, which we haven't discussed in a while. Because of that, and because you recently had an 80s song tournament, we decided to head back to the 60s, after which we'll probably jump ahead to the 80s. Keith and Larry weren't too keen on talking about the early 60s. You may have noticed that I'm more of an oldies guy than they are. So we decided to start our year-by-year 60s song drafts in 1965, which was a pivotal year when rock and its related forms really started to mature thanks to songs and albums by artists like The Beatles, Bob Dylan, and various Motown and soul acts. The intro song from 1965, or actually intro songs, were picked by Keith. He's going to say a few words about them. Yeah, speaking of music maturing, you know, the Fugs kind of represent that in those two songs, yeah. which are, yeah, like Boobs a lot, and I couldn't get high. <laughs> which, definitely, definitely super mature songs. Definitely I mean, very, very mature. Those seriously might have been the worst songs we've ever played on this playlist. <laughs> I mean, on this podcast. Sorry. <laughs> but in a sense, it's almost like the, you can always see the birth of, like, college radio and rock, right? Like, yeah. Like the Violent Femmes, right? Yeah, it's sophomoric, it's juvenile, it's lewd, and it's it actually is you know a little bit of a growth in sort of music, right? Like you, like people were figuring out in the in the mid '60s that you can sing literally about anything. Where previously it was you know you were singing about you know a lot different kind of content. So I mean, you were uh, still thinking about boobs, you just weren't quite as explicit about it. 
Yeah. So credit to the to the Fugs, which the, the name Fugs is sort of a take on fuck. And I'm looking at what their label was, and it's Avant Rock Noise Music in 1965, right? Like, hey, sign me up for Avant, Avant Rock Noise Music back then where and and you can hear it in the music right you're looking back in a way right it's looking back to music from before but also you can sort of see where it leads to going forward so i i picked it because you know obviously we weren't going to pick it for, <laughs> uh we weren't going to pick it in the draft but i do think that there's a place for the fugs in music history their content wasn't great their musical Chops weren't great, but they uh, <laughs> the vocals weren't great. The vocals weren't great. There's nothing great about it. There's nothing there's great about it. Place, but there's a place for that in the sort of trajectory of music. So, hey, I'm giving credit to the Fugs, and hey, you know you'd like it a lot too. So, You're kind of a forerunner oh. of Girls by the Beastie Boys as well. Right, exactly. Is yeah. It's definitely a say what you want about it. There's a timelessness to the content. One of the things that about about those two songs that that's kind of a microcosm of '65 is when you listen to the broad swath of different types of music. Like you still had a lot of novelty songs like this that were you know big hits. You also had a lot of songs that like this song, other than maybe the the content. Could have easily come out in like the late fifties. It has that sort of vibe, right? That's exactly. It's a nod to the past with a nod to yeah. the future. Yeah. So the future is around the content. And like you said, you know, the fact that, hey, we can actually probably get away with this. But the sound is kind of fifties. But there's a lot of that in sixty five. If you look go through playlists and you start listening to songs in sixty five, like Scott said, you still have a lot there's still jazz that happens, which is kind of unusual for pop music. There's still a lot of traditional rock and roll. You're starting to get a little bit into psychedelica. You're starting to get more into folk rock as well as just generalized folk. You know, you've got R&B. You've got Motown. It is really diverse. And then, again, you still come up with songs where you're like, how on earth in 1965 was this song popular? But, it, you know, there there are. So I guess we're, talk, we're talking about 1965 now. I think we're talking about that was my That was my segue from terrible song into awesome year. <laughs> Scott, what do you got to say about 1965, besides the Fugs rule? Yeah, <laughs> your, your, your unrequited love of the Fugs. Yes, Bob Dylan and the Beatles, I would say they pretty much tower over the year. But you had the Rolling Stones releasing their most famous song. The Who had a great debut album with some all-time teen anthems. There's tons of great other British Invasion stuff, as well as an absurd amount of first-rate Motown, soul music, garage rock and then you had folk rock which was a big thing especially on the american west coast so really good year the first pick for 1965 goes to keith followed by me and then larry and we'll reverse it for round two and so on for five rounds going from 79 back to 65 <laughs> is kind of it's kind of rough right my sweet spot is like emerging in in the late 70s and going back to 65 just for me personally like it's that trend like it's still, like um experimental music in 65 was like classic rock right it's, it's not experimental in our in our minds because that's what we grew up with 
So like it's that it's that transitional era, right? Where you're moving from fifties doo-wop and whatever, right? Like Elvis and still Sinatra into sort of the birth of rock, like rock music. And there's good stuff here for sure. But you don't you're not like pushing the envelope in sixty-five is just regular classic rock for us. Um, and that's sort of like, you know, I'm, I, I'm trying to find like what the um, what the, the year is all about. So let's get into 65. Let's do it. I mean, do we really even have to bother like playing your first song since we all know what it is? Yeah, I think we know what it is. Let's play it anyway. It's fucking yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. I want to hear it. Now, I thought about actually um, picking just you know, breaking rules and going straight to the live version from 66. But let's stay pure and and, uh, go with uh, the original, which is awesome. like Rolling Stone. There are no words, right? There are not enough superlatives to talk about. Honestly, to talk about this song because to me, this is sort of like the big bang for rock music. Like, this is where it all sort of really starts to... Like, you have so many genres that emerge from just this piece of art. Honestly, I like I, I almost I'm at a loss of words for <laughs> for the impact that this song had on music, how awesome it is just to listen to, but just the uh, just the impact that this song has on music going forward is just so immense. It's such a gigantic song. There's so much to unpack with it. Um I don't know, just Dylan in that moment 
takes music to just another level, a level that other artists just aspire, like they're reaching for after that, right? There's before like a Rolling Stone and there's after like a Rolling Stone. It's one of those cornerstone moments in music that, you know, it's just, it's revolutionary. The folk guy electrifying music and becoming, you know, way bigger. Uh, I don't know. I, Scott, tell us about like Rolling Stone, like only you can. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to. There were so many influential things about this song, but number one, I think, is that it made lyrics more important. Rock now is something to say beyond merely sounding good, right? Also, it was a number one song at a length that was then unprecedented. It was over six minutes long, and there was no single edit of the song, which had previously been the norm. There had also never been such an unpretty, untrained voice like that on the radio before. So you had all these new things that had never happened before. You had great storytelling and a master wordsmith whose words could legitimately be called poetry. And then you had the great backstory with Al Cooper crashing the recording session and dominating the song musically, with Dylan famously shouting to the producer to turn up the organ. And I love the clip you played, but I wish we could have heard the intro too. Just the intro organ is just magical, man. It's like, you know, the game has changed for good in the first five seconds. Yeah. I, I was on the fence with, with the song clip. I think the end is more powerful, but the beginning is so legendary too. It's a game changer right out of, right out of the gate. And the middle's pretty awesome too. <laughs> yeah, there's no reason. I want to pick up on something that, that both of you guys said too, which is it never minds that it's a great song and it's an epic song and it changed everyone's perception of Bob Dylan and it changed the perception of what a rock song could be. But it's also famously made everyone else step up their game. Like yes. the Beatles and the Beach Boys heard this and they're like, holy fuck, we need to try to do something that's almost as good as this. And that then became a game between the two of them where they would, you know, again, famously try to one-up each other with each subsequent album, right? It also made, as you said, Scott, a lot of the folk rock bands like, you know, the Birds and the um, and some of the, the earlier British invasion bands like the Kinks and the Zombies start thinking, we actually need to start upping our game from talking about girls to actually meaningful subjects and having a little bit deeper, more introspective lyrics, right? All of these bands, maybe at some point they would have started to do this, but it's like you said, this flipped the switch from rock is something that, that has pretty much one theme to now it can be used to tell stories and experiment and be very, very radically different from what it was in the 50s, which is another reason I think why 65 is such a seminal year. It, it's really when rock became more like, I, I don't want to say serious, but that's that's the word that, that sort of resonates. It's a seminal year because of this fucking song. Mm -hmm. This changes everything. And Larry, you say like bands felt like they had to, but I think bands felt liberated that they could, right? Like yeah. this is unleashing like people's creativity in a way that they couldn't unleash it before. Yeah, that's a great take on it too. Also, not that any of us are shortchanging it, but this is a phenomenal opener on an all-time album. I mean, we said for some reason, hey, you know what? We all know you're going to pick Like a Rolling Stone. You can't pick Like a Rolling Stone. You could have picked like five other songs and they would have also been equally awesome. And it was his second awesome album of 1965. Yeah.
Yeah, that's the other thing too. It's a little little bit of a different time when legit superstar artists like the Beatles and Dylan can come out with two all-time albums in the same freaking year. And he also never looked cooler than on the album cover. No, no, because that's certainly not a word you typically associate with Dylan. Looking cool. It's weird. It is weird seeing him like as a young hipster. Like, yeah, I think probably the hipster term was invented in 1965. And just Scott for the episode, just a reminder, right? This might not be the last Dylan song here. That's true, because there are other albums and other songs to consider. And I'll finish this segment by saying that "Like a Rolling Stone" has a very legitimate claim to being called the greatest rock song of all time. On acclaimed music, it's the number one song of all time. That is no brainer of a number one. Like, I can't take credit for picking this number one. No. Um, As a matter of fact, we probably would have to get number one. This almost makes up. I've had a few no brainers in my. <laughs> I, I seem to have no brainers uh, yeah. on my years. But. As Scott started to say, it almost, but not quite, makes up for the Fugs or Fugs or whatever the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> all right well give us give us a good follow-up there's certainly right. options yeah this one was tough to be honest with you number one is easy but go. number two is not easy yeah so i'm gonna go and i think keith would go this way so this next song is just so influential it's an explosive early hard rock song with a fury that's pure punk way before punk people try to put us to death just because we could g- g- get around generation by the who and again i picked it so high as much for its influence as for its greatness it's one of the first songs to use feedback to such an extent keith moon is an incredible wild man on drums we already talked about bob dylan's unconventional vocals well here you have roger daltrey's memorably stuttered vocals it's one of the all-time teen anthems then you have maybe the most famous bass solo in rock history which we didn't even play and also probably the most famous lyric in rock history, Hope I Die Before I Get Old. I'm pretty sure that Pete regrets writing that line now. Whatever, it's still a classic. I think you could make a case that its parent album, Who Sings My Generation, was the strongest of all the British Invasion debut albums. Maximum R&B, they fittingly called it. And obviously the other major standard on the album was The Kids Are All Right which arguably both invented and simultaneously perfected power pop. 
I was going to comment on the distortion too because it's very garage rock. It's very punk. It sounds like chaos, right? It sounds almost unhinged, but it's totally by design. I mean, that's part of the point. Even the stuttering, Scott, you know what the uh, the stuttering is supposed to represent, don't you? No, I don't. I probably did at one point. I don't remember. Apparently, at the time, when kids would, or, you know, kids and mods would take certain drugs, it would make them stutter. And so that's what he was replicating, even though it was sort of like a code to them that he he was you know that's what he did and that he was and that they were into it but nobody else would figure that out because nobody would know that unless you did it but yeah which which sort of gets again into the whole ethos of that song right i mean yeah that's a pretty bold statement to say on your first album when you're first starting out in rock but yet that was that's a very rock and roll and i would say a very very punk attitude right hope i die before i get old i mean that's that's i'm shocked that that's not more uh, that more punk bands didn't cover it. Well, how do you top that? The punk bands can't even hope to compete with the Who. I know, like, maybe that's right. Yeah, that could be it. The live version of Live at Leeds is epic. Uh, yeah, 16 minutes. It's a total mm-hmm. transformation with the mm-hmm. medleys and all kinds of stuff and an absolutely amazing version. We talked about Blind Generation in 77, and this is kind of the same thing, right? This song could be talking about any generation, right? And then you have, like you said, the chaos in the music. It's almost like it's falling apart but they managed to keep it together. And that's kind of part of what makes it so exciting, right? I probably referenced this song like 10 times in different episodes, just because whenever like there's something like punk or like angry, this is where it all started. Um, So this is another birth in a a way. Again, there's music before and there's music after. And I think I, I probably referenced it for London Calling, right? It's another one of these I think calls, you did, yeah. right? A call to arms, yeah. you know, youth rising up and the disillusionment. And it's sort of weird because for us, who were old, <laughs> but back in 1965, they were like, they were, right? they were punk instead of the punk ethos that sort of later would become punk. Yeah, it's, it's a great song. It's a transformational song, legendary song. May not be that you know it's not their best song for my, from well, it's not my favorite song, but I can appreciate sort of what it meant for that generation. Right? It's it is my generation. Yeah, I mean they have more epic songs, but this may be the most influential song. Yep. All right, we ready for number three? Yeah, we are. We know what's coming. Don't try. And I think us. I know. All right. Well, I guess we'll find out if you guys are right, as always. Let's see. Not that you're always right, but as always, we'll find out if you're right. We're usually right. Yeah, you guys are right probably more often than not. Are you right? Nope. I'm not surprised, but I'm not right. Nice. Keith? A little early for me. This is the one I debated, actually, with the last song. So I'm glad I picked the other one since you picked this one. I know I often stop and think about them In 
in my life by the Beatles off of rubber soul. And there are lots of reasons I picked this song, but I, I picked it for a couple of main reasons. To me, this is a top five Beatles song of all time, but it's also according to the Beatles themselves, the first song where they really started to be more thoughtful about what they were writing as opposed to just stuff about finding girls in love, right? Lennon said this was his really first major piece of art. It's called In My Life, but it really is about him. And the first, like, when he first started writing lyrics, they were kind of crappy because he just felt like he wasn't really being as introspective and thinking more about where he wanted to be as an artist. And so he kind of trashed them all and redid it, made it very much more about himself and came up with a masterpiece. And... I specifically, I don't know, you know, Scott, if you were to pick the different, you had a different clip because I know you said this was one you were debating on, but I specifically picked this because you have to get the piano at the end. I had a different clip, just shorter, but I did have the end. Yeah, that's, I mean, to me, that's, that's where the Beatles are, are now experimenting with different types of takes and different types of instrumentation and music. And this one apparently generated a boom in adding harpsichord to songs even though that was not a harpsichord it was just a piano but it was slowed down and played at half speed but it became reminiscent of a harpsichord sound so more bands started to try to copy that because you know of course if you're going to copy a band you're probably going to end up copying the beatles yeah i love me some harpsichord too love, um, love and that was george martin playing the piano so also props to him showing yes. his value as the fifth beatle so to speak and again you have the influence of dylan right the more contemplative lyrics, like you said, it's the song is melancholic and nostalgic, but also optimistic. Because John treasures his past, but looks forward to the future. And obviously, Robert Soul was a fantastic album that, along with Dylan, moved the album format significantly as an art form. So, fantastic song on an album full of fantastic songs. And there was another song not on the album that a lot of people probably would have picked. Are we talking about yesterday? Of course, yeah. Yesterday is, is like a seminal Beatles song. What is it, like the most covered song of all time? Yeah, and it's unique in that it's essentially a Paul solo song as well, it's, right? Yeah, it's, With orchestrations. Yeah, it's a phenomenal song. It, it also, like, it's sort of in a similar uh, similar vibe, right? And it's, very, it's, it's a little melancholy. It's, it's very nostalgic. This one just hits me a little bit harder. So, yeah, but those are both great songs. I mean, this is another year where, again, if you go to... Um, Best of our albums. The first like 20 songs are all either by Dylan, the Beatles, and then there's like a handful of other songs. And again, they're from four albums because each of them had two great albums in 65. 
And the genius of the Beatles, yesterday is barely two minutes long. This is not even two and a half minutes long. And they're not too short. It's just perfect. Yep. And I was just going to add that Ticket to Ride is just another one of those songs from the Beatles on the earlier album, Help, that was just an expansion of their sound, right? Like, Mm -hmm. the the second you hear Ticket to Ride, it's like this booming um, soundscape that's, you know, the production, and you can just tell that the production is is taking it to a different level. Yep. Same goes with Norwegian Wood on Rubber Soul, right? I mean, is that the first song, like popular song, that actually had a sitar on it, right? Yeah. And you could go with the title track to help also. Nowhere, man, we could go on. And we did go on, if you want to check out our Beatles episode, episode 53. So we talk a lot more about the Beatles there. We do. All right. So I, I kind of feel like I know what song you guys expect me to pick, but I, I, I just, I don't know. I don't I don't want to pick it. Pick something else, then. I'm, I'm going to. Do you, old man? Do you? There is no way that this is a song that you think I'm going to pick with my second pick of 65. How about that? Maybe I'm, I might have an insight into what you may be. I'm intrigued. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me, yeah. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me. And I'm feeling good. You guys didn't have me picking that, did you? I'm not shocked you picked it, to be honest. I definitely didn't expect it this early. I know, but sometimes you just got to go with your vibe, right? I intentionally wanted to pick this early for a couple of reasons. So that was Feeling Good by Nina Simone. Part of it is because that's got to be one of the most epic beat drops of all time. And it came out in 1965. Like, you know, you're typically, you think of a beat drop as a dance song, something that came out in the 90s or the 2000s or the 2010s. I was on a college visiting tour with my son Noah last week, and he was complaining. I was playing him a lot of classic songs. Didn't have enough songs with beat drops. So I'm like, fine, I'll play this. And he was like, yeah, that's okay. Which for him saying that's okay is actually like means it's really good. The beat drop is so epic because all it is is Nina Simone, who has a phenomenal voice singing, and then boom, it hits you. And you're like, oh my God, this is a totally different song now. So the second reason I wanted to play it is because this is a jazz and soul song, right? And we don't get enough of that. There is another jazz song I probably could have played, but there's no vocals. I don't know if it really fit the vibe. And third is that it's a kick-ass song, right? This is like your, it's 1230, 
You're at the bar. You can still smoke in bars. It's smoky. You're on your like seventh old fashioned and you know, this song comes on and you're like, yeah, I can probably hang out here for another couple of hours, especially if I'm watching some live jazz. Like it's that kind of vibe. It almost gives me the same kind of vibe as I'm going to quiz you guys. What song do you think this has the same vibe as that we talked about in the nineties? Glory box. Exactly. Yep. It's got that same feeling for me. And so I, ha I had to go with it. Yeah, I know it's early, but sometimes sometimes we do that. What a singer, right? And I love the point you made, part soul, part jazz. But at the end of the day, she just made Nina Simone music, right? And nobody really made Nina Simone music other than her. And you got to love the horns here and just the overall drama and message of the song, man. It's just a great song. And I think Nina Simone in recent years has really been elevated. There was a documentary about her. More people are discovering her. She was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Just a totally singular, great artist, great song. Yeah, I got Nina Simone on my draft board. But it might not have been this song. Mm. I hear you. I went back and forth a lot. Again, the only reason is the beat drop. That's the only reason. So, I the song is still on the board. So yeah. it's a different album. We'll see. Yep. All right. So I won't say what the song is, but I know what song it is. And yeah. I was definitely going back and forth because it is an epic song. And I will say this song is certainly easy to pick a clip from. Yes. And can we talk a little more about jazz? Am I allowed to say who I think you were thinking of besides this? Yes, of course. I think you are going to pick something from A Love Supreme by John Coltrane. Yes. And I agree, it's one of the all-time great jazz albums by one of the all-time great jazz musicians, but I think the problem in picking a song from it is it's just one of those self-contained albums. So right. what you song do you clip? pick? What clip yeah. do you pick? But and, highly right. recommend it. Absolutely. Yeah, that, and, that's, and that's literally why I didn't pick it. I was going to mention it at some point, but you can't pick part of a love supreme it's like it doesn't make any sense it's like it would be like saying like oh you know i'm just going to zoom in on like one eye of the mona lisa it's just it doesn't fit you know you need to listen right. to the entire album turn the lights off yeah have yourself some a bourbon uh -huh. in your head and just listen to the thing from start to finish yeah, yeah. Talk about a spiritual album. Right? Oh, my God. And he was like to the sax what Jimi Hendrix was to the guitar. Just there was no one like him. And I want to do a shout out to my all time favorite John Coltrane song, not from this year. His cover of My Favorite Things is just amazing. So good. You couldn't have a Coltrane album in the 90s because it just wouldn't register, right? Like it's, it's like the 60s, you still had yeah. that type of music be at the forefront where you might, you know, you might consider it. Every once in a while, there's a flukish album like Campsire Washington or, or someone like that that becomes semi-popular, right? But very rare today. That's one of my favorite albums of the last 10 years, by the way. The very, very aptly named The Epic. All right, I'm up again, huh? Yep. Yeah, not an easy call here. Yeah, there's lots, lots of good stuff still left out there. This was the other song that I was considering picking with my pick.
That was the birds with their cover of Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man, which introduced to many the classic jangly Rickenbacker guitar sound, later used by Tom Petty, R.E.M., and countless others. The song, which was a U.S. and U.K. number one hit, popularized Bob Dylan and folk rock, which exploded in popularity. Of course, Roger McGuinn's vocals are very Dylan-esque, but his beautiful guitar sound and the band's lovely harmonies made the song go down much smoother and easier than Dylan's version, which was also great and about twice as long. And the band released two very strong albums in 1965, containing other classic songs like Feel a Whole Lot Better and Turn, Turn, Turn. The Birds were a great band whose profile has sadly decreased in recent years as classic rock radio has abandoned them. But just listen to that classic guitar intro. Right from the get-go, you know you're hearing something unique and special. And it's funny you mentioned that the fact that Birds are, are um, underrated or, or becoming less, you know, less well-known. Pitchfork, every Sunday does this thing called the the Sunday Review, where they review an album that they never reviewed during their history, which obviously makes sense because they wouldn't have reviewed this. And today's was the uh, Notorious Bird Brothers, which is a phenomenal album, also a very uh, turbulent album. Like you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of birds fighting going on between uh, between David Crosby and Roger McGuinn. Um, I think they did they they either fired him or he quit. I can't remember. And they put a horse's ass on the album cover to represent Crosby. Did they, did they seriously? <laughs> yeah. That was in our original album tournament, The Notorious Bird Brothers. Yeah, yeah, because it's album. a phenomenal album. Yeah. But so a couple things about about the, the birds and, and this song. I mean, I, they're almost different songs, but to me this is the classic, even though it's not the original version of Mr. Tamarine Man. And and it has to do with, like you said, the jangle you know, the, the jangle rock or jangle pop of the, of the Rick and Barry guitar and the harmonies. I mean, are, are there any bands that had as great singers all harmonizing the same time as the birds? I can't think of any. Beach Boys are contemporaries to them. I was saying like, I meant, sorry, I meant like going forward now. Th- th- nobody does that. Like, it's just not this, not a thing yeah. anymore. One of the greatest harmony groups ever. And it wasn't the horse's ass. It was just a horse. I'm sorry. It's a horse? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, actually. It's funny. I just went to go look at it too. Yeah, it's just a horse. Yeah. yeah. I, I did. I had turn, turn, turn is my is on my draft board over Tambourine Man, but you could go either way. And and I would just say that you know when you when you listen to it, to me there's not a big differentiation in 1965 between and this may be blasphemy, but between the Birds and the Beatles for the quality of the music at you know, for that particular. Year. I don't think it's. I don't think it's blasphemy. As a matter of fact, I, my guess is that if this was 1965, I think that would probably be a pretty vigorous debate as to which one was better. Well, they were considered an American counterpart to the Beatles. The difference being, a lot of their top songs were cover songs, although they had a lot of great originals as well. Yeah. And right. Bob Dylan maybe doesn't become Bob Dylan without help from the Birds. They certainly pushed that along. Yeah, I had both songs on my my draft board, and I was probably going to make a game time decision as to which one it was, but. If I had not picked Nina, I would have picked Mr. Tamarine Man. Again, it just goes to show you, it's so bizarre for us now where, you know, now one of the bands that we like, it might be five years between albums. Here you had bands, all-time bands, churning out two great albums a year. That's just absurd. And their career was over two years later, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> well, not in this case, but they're very short albums as well. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're we're talking only- like 20, 30 minute albums versus in the CD era, we're talking 60, 70, 80 minute albums. So there is a difference in that respect as well. It's funny you say that. I remember having this, I, I won't say it was an argument. It was more like a discussion with my mom, right? I remember buying an album and I put the cassette in and she asked me, how many songs are in this album? And I'm like, I don't know, like six, right? And she's like, six? Like in my day when I was growing up, there'd be like, 15 songs and I'm like yeah mom but the songs were like two minutes long right because it was like I don't know it was probably like a Floyd album or like Rush where there were like five songs on it but all of them were 12 minutes long you know King Crimson yeah and so yeah like like a lot of the Bird albums are like not even, they're like some of them aren't even 30 minutes long yeah and you could make a case for Dylan's version to be drafted as well it's a classic in its own right it is a classic but this one speaks more to me I guess the vocals yeah and the guitar yeah, it's it's a great one. All right, good pick, Keith. You got doubles. I got I got uh, finally it's back to me. Finally, yeah, finally. All right, well, you know the rules in in this uh, episode are a little different than we've had in the past, so I'm going to take advantage of it. And I'm not a fanboy. I swear to God, I'm not. I really am not. Fuck, man. <laughs> just, just you can't not. It's unavoidable. There's no way we cannot play this song. If you didn't pick this, I was going to pick it. No, I do not feel that good when I see the heartbreaks you embrace. If I was a master thief, perhaps I'd rob them. And now I know you're dissatisfied with your position and your Diss track, right? Bob Dylan with the first diss track. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I don't know if I ever thought of it as a diss track, but it's totally a diss track. It's yeah. <laughs> awesome. Just didn't name, never had his name. No. But yeah, again, this is Dylan taking music just in directions that it hadn't been before. Speaking from the heart, speaking with a snake's tongue, right? Like he's lashing out and it's awesome. Like Rolling Stone and Positively Four Street are like, to me, Dylan would never, those are his two best songs. I don't want to say never because Dylan just says so much great shit after that, but it's just so transformational for me. It's like where it tells other artists where they can go with music. It's just, it's incomparable. Um, and again, 1965, 
Dylan just coming out, you know, he had two albums, this was a single. This is the third Dylan song we picked. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Destroying the land. And we've only, picked, we've only picked six songs. I said at the beginning, Dylan and the Beatles dominated this year, more so Dylan. Dylan, absolutely more so, right? Like he's, yeah. uh, where the Beatles go from here, again, is a function of what Dylan is laying down in 65. So, like, to me, the best, like, the, the, the Beatles from 66 to 70, right, are, are just, like, taking stuff that they had. And, again, like, the Beatles were already crafting music, in a, you know, in a different way, but they combined what they were doing with what Dylan was doing into like what they did over the next five years. But this is Dylan's spitting fire. The best of the Beatles was yet to come. I would argue, and I think you guys would agree that this was Dylan at his peak. Maybe you could make a case that he had other peaks as well, but he certainly never was better than like a Rolling Stone and this song, which I don't think we actually named. It's positively forced Street, which you would never know because he never says those never words. Says it. Exactly. Yeah. And it, I think it's one of his greatest songs ever. And again, props to Al Cooper, man. He's just phenomenal on the organ there. I wish he had done more songs with Al Cooper because that organ just fits so perfectly. But the music is just a warm-up to some of the most spiteful, bitter lyrics in rock history, including the greatest kiss-off last line ever. Truly the stuff of legend. Like I said previously, when we talked about Idiot Win. Don't piss Bob Dylan off. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And, and you know, it's funny that you it's, you said that we never talked about the the name of the song, and you would never know. I don't think I knew the name of this song for like I don't know years until I got my fir- my like first Dylan album, which embarrassingly was the uh, greatest hits. You know, right. like, the, like the blue one you know, with like the silhouette. I'm like, oh. I didn't know that's what it was called because they would also never tell you that on the radio when they would play it. And I agree, you know, like with both of you guys, like this and, and Rolling Stone are, are his two best songs. And this is Pete Dillon. One thing I was thinking about though, as I was sort of like contemplating whether or not, I mean, I knew I would never be able to pick like a Rolling Stone because I didn't have the number one pick. Is Dylan slightly underrated because his career has gone on for so long and he's fairly consistent in putting out good albums but then he'll come out with a great album but it's so long like he like people think of his peak is in the 60s 70s like the album he came out with in during uh covid the 2020 like what was it rowdy ways like, that was a great album i don't know if it's an all-time album it's a great album nobody talks about it he's like yeah dylan he's been doing it for 40 years whatever like i feel like in some ways he's a little underrated i mean i think his stature is up there with anybody, but I, I can kind of see what you mean. He gets a little taken for granted. That might be a better way of saying it. It's like he's taken for granted. Yeah. His career is unparalleled in the longevity and in the number of classic songs he's had. I mean, who can compete with him, really? Probably part of it is his own association yeah. with fame, right? And, and like, he doesn't offer up. He's still, like, the reclusive, like, genius guy who's not going to become a celebrity, right? He's not looking to be that guy. That's part of his genius is there's still this mystery about him. He wrote an autobiography and still nobody knew anything about him. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's kind of a brilliant marketing in non-marketing, right? He's this enigma. And 
and he has these lyrics that people pour over. There's the term Dylanologist. What other artists have that where people just study his lyrics? You know what a drag it is to see you. That's like... <laughs> and the funny thing is this is the nastiest song ever and all three of us had a smile a mile wide when that <laughs> song, when that lyric came on. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right, I'm I'm still gonna leave songs for you guys to pick because I'm that kind of guy. It's not surprising at all. It's just it's kind of funny how we're on song seven and two artists, five out of seven songs, and an artist we've never talked about before. Yeah, yeah. So we got another repeat artist here. Yeah, and. As I said before, this was like 1A and 1B, right? Or 1 and 1A. Yeah, we alluded to this before, so here we go. And that was a studio version before. This is a live version. Right, it wasn't written for Nina Simone. It had been a, a, a song that had been out there. It was a traditional song that had right. been played by many over the years. Yep. And and then she takes it and just slays it. Right, slays it. it. Just crushes it. Absolutely. Yeah. After uh, that, but, it was a Nina Simone song. Yeah. <laughs> right. It, it hadn't been a Nina Simone song. And I think she I, she had an album, Sinner Man. 
I think a decade earlier, but that was a live version in 1965, and just you know, it's just it's fireworks, man. It's um, it's it's one of those songs that do you hear Bob Marley in that a little bit, like in in um, just the I don't know the the I chant, know. like just the, how it makes you feel, right? The chanting aspect yeah. of it. I could see that. It kind of has like a hypnotic intensity, almost like a shaman-like level of spirituality to it, like Bob Marley has at his best. Yep, absolutely. So that's, yep. this song is just, it, it's intense. It's, it's music, man. It's, um, and it's, it's a timeless song, right? It's not, you can't place it in sick. Like again, she recorded in the fifties. The live version is the 60s, and it's sort of a it's a timeless thing. You can't you can't place it. Got that piano groove. It's intense. It's got her distinctive vocals, and it's jazz, but it kind of rocks too, right? It does kind of rock, as you guys know, because I tell you a lot of times I'll put together these playlists and then I'll listen to it when I'm going for a run. And you know, when you're on a long run, you kind of don't want. You, sometimes you don't want like really long songs. You want something to continue to like occupy you the first time this song came up on my playlist i'm like ooh, i don't know if i really want to listen to a 10 minute song but it keeps building and it's powerful and i'm like okay no no i'm totally gonna listen to this song the entire run and i'm like running faster as it goes because it's a build and it's like you said in the beginning keith right is there any other word than power like it just makes you feel like that that's power it's awesome it's a key song great song Double, double Nina's. Love it. Both worthy. Yep. All right. All right, I guess I'm up. You're up. I'll admit that I got a bit sick of this next song over the years, but it's still great and needs to be in this episode, as it's the most famous song by one of the greatest rock bands ever. We, we kind of intentionally let you have to have this song. Yeah. This is a new song. Yeah, I know. I know. When you drive me, you can
That was I Can't Get No Satisfaction, which is typically short to simply Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. Famously, the legendary riff came to Keith Richards in his sleep. The song has a classic Mick Jagger vocal and disaffected lyrics that are very relatable. Again, I don't seek this song out anymore, unlike many of their other songs, but it's still an all-time classic tune. And I just want to do a shout-out to another 65 song, a great song by The Stones, Get Off My Cloud, featuring one of drummer Charlie Watts' best performances. But you got to go with Satisfaction. It's got to be in this episode, right? Yeah, I I mean, I I didn't have it higher up for the same reason that you didn't necessarily want to pick it, you know, because, again, after a while, I mean, this is probably one of the songs we've all heard the most in our lives, right? Like, just because... You hear it on the radio all the time, you hear it in shows, you hear it in movies, and it's a great song, but yeah, for a while you get a little bit tired of it, but it had to be here. It's a classic song. It's definitely the Rolling Stones' signature song, and it, you know, it's funny, when you hear it again after not listening to it for, so you kind of realize why it's so awesome, right? I mean, this is definitely when I would put up my playlist together and this would be on it, I would skip it, right? Because I'm like, I don't need to listen to Satisfaction again, but it's good listening to it. It makes you realize why it was on there. Yeah, and a great vocal by Mick as well. Yeah, and a little world weariness with Nick in this, despite the fact that it's like he's a little too young to be world weary at this point. But that's kind of what gives it that little bit of an edge. There's a little bit of that, like that, I don't know, sarcasm, snarly, like it. You you get that of why he can't get no satisfaction. Yeah, he sells it right. Yeah. I mean, you believe him. Yep. I mean, obviously, it's a classic song from that era. It's from that era. When you hear it today, you think 60s. And that's why, for me, there's a little bit of an ambivalence about it, but I certainly appreciate, you know, that it's a great song. One of the, so I, for Stones is 65, and just a credit to Mick Jagger, I'm just going to give a shout out to Mick Jagger. In 65, um, they, one of the songs that they came out with was That's How Strong My Love Is which was a cover song that came out in 64, but it was also covered in 65 by Otis Redding. So there's a version in 64, 65 by Otis, and 65 by The Stones, and it's a great song, and Mick crushes it. Like, The Stones version is better than Otis Redding version, and Mick crushes it better than Otis does. That's... That's how strong my love is for Mick. So <laughs> just a credit to that. That's a bold that's a bold statement, but okay. And a debatable statement. Go back. Let's let's bring it back in sixty-six and you guys will give me your honest feedback on All right, that's fair. I just did. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, we don't fight enough. It's probably good that we do it a little bit on this episode. <laughs> All right. So we had talked a little bit before about one of the all-time great albums not really being eligible for this podcast because you can't really pick one song off of it, right? It's just too difficult. But there is another jazz song from 1965, which is an all-time classic and is instantaneously recognizable. This kind of, (laughs) I just didn't think anyone would pick this, but yeah, you are kind of right. I know I'm right.
So I'm going to imagine that unless you had very chill parents, a Charlie Brown Christmas is probably the first exposure to jazz that most people had, unless or unless they had some like super weird, crunchy music teacher in third grade, right? Or second grade, right? This is how most people got their first exposure to jazz. No? Yeah, that's a good point. So that was Linus and Lucy from Vincent Giarda from A Charlie Brown Christmas. And it's sort of like famously known as like, that's the, that's the Peanuts or the Snoopy song because that's what everyone hears. Although my guess is that nowadays most kids probably don't even know who Snoopy is, which is sort of depressing. Yeah. We all know this from TV, from watching Charlie Brown on TV. Do yeah. the kids today still watch Charlie Brown? I don't know. I think, I'm pretty sure they still play Charlie Brown Christmas like every Christmas. I don't know. It's a bold pick, I must say. Well, you know, I figure I don't have too many chances to get some jazz in where it really fits the mood and fits the moment. And so this was this was my shot. So I don't really expect you guys to have a huge amount to say about it, but I needed to throw it in there. Some fantastic piano playing there. That's yeah. all I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. So the other reason I picked that song is, you know what? It just puts a smile on my face. It makes me feel good. Which yeah. is which is the same as the next song we're going to play. I think we may have some Motown coming. We do not have Motown coming. Oh, boy. There was a song in the 70s that I I regretted not mentioning the Peanuts song, and I can't, rem- I can't remember which song it is. Really? Wait, you, yeah. you, you regret not mentioning Linus and Lucy, the song I just played? <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, Allman Brothers? It was it the Allman Brothers? It, it was definitely been. the Allman Brothers. Whippin' Post? It makes sense to be the Allman Brothers because of the piano. It was Melissa Melissa or Jessica. 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 Jessica, baby. That was it. That was it. I'm glad you redeemed yourself. Yeah. By the way, Larry, this song was definitely on my draft board. I and it and so go back and listen to Jessica and hear freaking peanuts. Freaking Schroeder hanging on on the keyboard. Never unhear it again. You'll never unhear it. All right, I might do that later tonight. All right, here's another feel-good song that was also on Scott's list. So that was not the monkeys. That was no, the monkeys. that was the monkeys. That was not the monkeys. That was the love and spoonful with "Do you believe in magic?" Come on, man! Obviously, you don't believe in magic. If you're, I, I love the way they used it to make a gun too. So. <laughs> that was that was that was also a different song. That was Herman's Hermits. Uh, yeah, my bad. When they're running on the beach and they close like the other couple. I mean, that's yeah, and when they leave platoon hilariously laughing. Yeah. 
All right, so we've now mentioned two songs without actually talking about The Love and Spoonful, led by John Sebastian, who, be, who Keith, at least throw me this bone, became later famous for? Uh, I don't know. Sebastian. Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome back, Hannah. Come on, dude. You wrote the theme song. Okay, okay. <laughs> Keith, color Keith, not impressed. You know what? I didn't diss you when you picked Casey last episode. This is a fucking great that. song, man. <laughs> no apologies. You are making irreverent references. All right, fair enough. Yeah. It's one of the great songs of all time. You got more folk rock here, right? Except this is New York. East Coast, <laughs> and it's just one of those great feel-good, airy, summery yeah. You got, you know, lyrics like groovy, right? <laughs> like, that's like totally 60s, but it's just pop perfection. It's got yeah. that great shuffle beat, it's short but sweet guitar solo, and it's just so damn likable, right? Exactly. I mean, just, like you can't song. listen to that song without having a smile on your face. Although, now that we're talking about East Coast and West Coast, it would have been fucking phenomenal if the East Coast and West Coast folk bands got into the same, the same right. violent, you know, uh, aggressive... Yeah. 90s hip-hop, East Coast, West Coast, that'd be phenomenal. We got the Mamas and the Papas versus the Love and Spoonful having yeah. a gang fight. Totally. That'd be awesome. <laughs> My money would be on the Mamas and Papas because I don't think oh. you can fuck with Mama Cass. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely advantage Mamas and the Papas. <laughs> If you don't like this song, you're just a miserable negative person. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So now you gotta now you gotta come up with something. You gotta come up with something just as feel good or don't go totally in the opposite direction. Well, I think we gotta go in the opposite direction here. This is the guy we just talked about. I also gotta say this is my most eclectic set of picks ever. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. You went from peanuts to uh long spoonful. Yeah. So we talked about soul music in the intro. So you got to figure there's going to be some soul music coming, right? So here's a gritty, classic Southern soul number by an incomparable singer who is hard to top in terms of raw emotion. I've been loving you a little too long. I don't want to stop I've been loving you too long by the great if ill-fated Otis Redding, a co-write with the also great Jerry Butler. This song may very well feature Otis's single finest vocal performance and arguably one of the greatest vocal performances ever, period. He pleads as if his life depends on it. His desperate vocals are so real and expressive. This is an achingly slow, vulnerable ballad, and it's the spaces between the notes that really heighten the drama. 
And when the song builds to its emotional climax, it literally gives me chills. Also, a shout-out to the great and legendary backing band Booker T and the MGs, along with the Memphis Horns, who are also fantastic. And Otis Blue, which features this song, is among the greatest soul albums ever. And to come full circle, the album features a good cover of Satisfaction, which we just discussed. Talking about covers. Well, you're going to say, a change is going to come, baby. A change is going to come. 64 is dead to us, but 65 opens up the door for songs like Change is Going to Come by Otis, my man, covering the great late Sam Cooke, Change is Going to Come. And there's just a heaviness to that, that like, right? We should talk. We should dedicate an episode to that fucking song. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now you're talking civil rights and yeah, it's like conscious what's, part it's of what's it. going on. It's, yeah, it's yeah. Marvin. It's uh, and Otis does justice to it just a year a year later. I'd go beyond that. I'd say Otis has the definitive version of the song. That's how good it is. As great as Sam's is, Otis to me. Just slays. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to, I mean, Sam just poured so much of his life in play. Like, that was his, uh, like, that was such an important song. Um, and while Otis, like, did make it his own, it's hard to, like, not call it a, like, Sam Cook. Yeah. That was his legacy. That's his legacy, right? And I, I'm bringing it up because, it's worth mentioning here, you know, in 65, Otis crushes it and, uh, you know, it could have been a, it could have been a pick, but yeah. your pick was great too. I'll take that back actually, because I don't think Otis would like me saying that. That's how much he loves Sam Cooke. And Sam's version is great too. And a shout out to a much later version by a guy named Baby Huey, who did a fantastic version of it as well. The only thing I was going to add to that is, you mentioned Booker T and you also mentioned, you know, the Memphis sound and, and, and stacks totally like underrated and overlooked. They so influential in so many things. And we could also do a podcast just about that sound and, and stacks. Right. I mean, that's and Booker T and the MGs played on every song by yeah. stacks records. They were the house band. They were the house and, band. And they did their own legendary stuff like Green Onions. They like are Green one Onions. of the greatest bands ever. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, but yet nobody knows, nobody knows that. They were phenomenal. Like you said, we could really dig deeper on that in, in like a kind of standalone episode. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I mean, they, they planned so many different things. You could, we could have a, a draft and every song would feature them, but yet they would all be different artists. So. Yeah. All right. Great pick. And this song totally slayed at the Monterey Pop Festival as well. You're you're up, right? You're up. Oh, it's me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh shit. Oh man. He always does this. Okay. Oh, I'm up. I don't know what to do. Yeah. Pick <laughs> something, something French. Yeah. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> Right now, right now, frantically Googling top rated. Just <laughs> <laughs> pick the next song on your board. Come on. I got it. You got have a board. I don't know. Larry's going to like this one. Even it, it's a different song, but. So funny you say this because Dude. if I would have had the intro song to this year, I would have picked this band, but a different song. I would have picked. 
I still might pick it. I don't know if I can. I have to pick it for now. I would. I think I would. I would have picked a different song from this band. That, that was going to be my last pick. Do you know what song it is? You can te- text it to me separately. Yeah. This song is what this show is all about. I just put it in the chat. Yes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. That's exactly the song I was going to pick. So now we have to play it. Oh yeah, totally. So that was Cinderella by the Sonics, but the song that I was saving for my last pick was a different Sonic song. To me, this one's even better. intensity that you just don't get from that era, right? And oh, God, no. That does not sound like a song from 65. And then, But it does. In a, in a way, it does, right? Like, it's got the rock and roll, right? There's a rock and yeah. roll aspect. Yeah, it's got a garage rock and roll aspect. Garage rock and roll on steroids. Yeah. Right. It's, it's a punk like, song, man. That's a punk song. Both of them have, like, I, I went back and forth because the screens, which are, like, <laughs> the, the birth of, like, Ronnie James Dio was born from that. <laughs> <laughs> so good. The book plug, you know, I have a book about music, the story of rock and soul music, album reviews and lists, and one of my lists is greatest singers. This guy, Jerry Rossley, is on that list. Those wild man vocals are incredible. 
absolutely. And this is this is a great album because so if you listen to it, like it, it's it's mostly covers, right? We're talking about here are the Sonics, right? Yeah, which, yeah. which is what Strychnine is from. Which the yeah. other song was on a different album. Yeah. yeah. So and and by the way, here are the Sonics has not one, not two, not three, but six exclamation points. Three in the front and three. In the back. <laughs> which is punk, right? Yeah, totally punk. This is four years before the Stooges. Nine years before the Dan and the Ramones, right? So this is punk way before punk. This is, yeah, this is proto punk. This is way before punk. It's it's another one of those albums where like the entire album I don't even think is thirty minutes long. Every song is like two minutes, and they just they, they're crushing it. Like the their covers, you're like I don't even know if I recognize some of this. Some they're playing, but they're playing they're playing music in a way that like they don't care about. Yeah, sounding like the Beatles or like anything of that era. It's just like we're gonna just we're just gonna slay. And if you like me, great. If not, go fuck yourself. Right? And yeah. That is an ethos that carries on, you know, way beyond what they what they were doing at that time. There's a magnificence to it. like I fucking love like hearing it. Just is like it, it's. You know, to, to my ears, it's just amazing hearing it, just yeah. knowing that that's coming from that from that year and that time. It's very exciting. It's so loud for that era. You got great guitar and drums, but also you got saxophone, piano, yeah. in addition to those vocals, man. There's a nod to the 50s and early 60s to the music, but the way they present it is just so forward that I don't care that it's like rock and roll, it's rock and punk and all that stuff wrapped into one. And just to talk more about Strychnine, Cinderella is great. I love it. Strychnine, I just love a little bit more because of the lyrics, right? I mean, it's about straight up drinking poison because he likes it, right? I mean, I don't know that this song could get any more badass than that, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it is. It's, it's such a punk, it's such a punk ethos. It's such a, it's such a badass song. And I don't know. It just, I, whenever I put, whenever I hear it, I turn it up and it like can't get turned up more. And it's just, just puts a huge smile on my face. I just love everything about that song. Yeah. yeah and they were a major band on the Nuggets box set. We'll be talking a lot more about that in 1966. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Great pick, man. I would have gone with the other song, but like you said, flip a coin. Yeah, get the Sonics in there, and I'm I'm totally excited. Yeah, absolutely. Here's a song that you know. Come on, we've been we've been dancing around it. We got to get it in, right? I thought we might save this for '66, but yeah, it's the greatest opening line in music history. One of the greatest songs in music history. Period. Yeah, yeah, you can't go wrong with this song. Hello darkness, my old friend I've come to talk with you again Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound of silence in restless dreams I walked alone narrow streets of cobblestone beneath the halo of a street lamp I turned my collar to the cold and damp when my eyes were stared by the 
And here we are again with a masterpiece with Simon and Garfunkel. They are folk rock. I almost don't think of them as folk rock. Like, I, I feel like it's, it's just, a, it's like a slightly different genre and partially just because of the way that they harmonize the songwriting. It's a little more singer songwriter for me, but I totally get it. It's the same vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, you think of Paul Simon as a singer-songwriter, and yeah. and they would join the Love and Spoonful on the East Coast, West Coast beef. So now yeah. we have them versus the Birds and the Mamas and the Papas. Have it out. Yeah, that's right up there with Patti Smith, right? Opening line. Yep. All right, Scott, you got your last pick? Well, sort of last pick. What do you got? My father used to say, turn that radio down. And I'd say, but Dad, it's smoky. Tracks of My Tears by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. This was a tough pick. I knew I'd pick at least one Motown song, but there were many great and classic songs to pick from. From the Supremes, the Four Tops, Moth and the Vandellas, Junior Walker, Tim Weston, Stevie Wonder and the Temptations, all of whom will be on our honorable mentions playlist at the very least. But ultimately it came down to two songs written by the great Smokey Robinson, who Bob Dylan not one who readily hands out praise, allegedly called America's greatest living poet. I decided to go with this one, perhaps Smokey's greatest creation. I mean, how's this for a brilliantly affecting lyric? So take a good look at my face. You'll see my smile looks out of place. Look a little closer. It's easy to see the tracks of my tears. It's just so clever and evocative. It's pop, but it's deep. And the song has such a great and catchy melody as well. And Smokey sure could sing. He was right up there with the Temptations' Eddie Kendricks in terms of that soft, high-pitched falsetto vocal style. And the song was later prominently featured in popular movies like The Big Chill and Platoon. And of course, my intro there referred to an old Smokey Robinson commercial a lot of people of a certain age will remember. It's easy enough to find on YouTube. Just search for Smokey Robinson commercial. This is a great song. I, I actually probably would have picked a different Smokey song. I had, I had Tears of a Clown as my uh, my Smokey song on the... That's 1970. Is it really? Yeah. You could have gone, ooh, baby, baby. Maybe I could... Maybe, maybe I, could, I don't know why I thought it was 65 then. I must have been listening to like some sort of like compilation. Anyway, well, I guess it doesn't matter, right? I, I missed my shot both years. Scott and I got a text about two hours ago from my dad. And his text says, true icon and one of my all-time favorites just performed on American Idol. The one and only Smokey Robinson. He's so smooth, it looks great. 
So nice. I know Scott, if you're just throwing data bone or, or not, but he's a favorite of the flowing fan. So the other Motown song that I considered the other Smokey Robinson song, which would be an even bigger favorite of my father, was My Girl by The Temptations. Another one of the songs that if you don't like, if it doesn't make you feel good, you're a terrible person. And didn't and Otis really did that too? Otis did that too, right? Yeah, but the Temps version is the version. Yeah. All right, Larry, bring us home. All right, I'm uh, I'm not picking a Motown song. And I'm picking a song by a band that's famous for generating epic, legendary players of a certain instrument that kind of doesn't appear that much in this song. So it's a little ironic. Mm, I had them on my board, but it was another song that was very guitar heavy. Yeah, I thought about that one too, but I feel like this one is a little more... I don't know, a little more something. talked before about how in my life sort of foreshadowed using more harpsichord well that's an actual harpsichord in this song and that was for your love by the yardbirds and they actually kind of thought like how how are we gonna market a pop song with a harpsichord in it especially when we're known for having epic guitar players and uh instead there's barely any guitar in this at all except in the middle section but yet this became their first uh, charting single in the United States. And actually at that point, I'm fairly certain that Eric Clapton had either left or had decided to leave. He left after the song because he thought they were going to pop. And he pop. was a blues yeah. purist at that point. He, he so he went to John Mayo, which is pretty funny because for a so-called pop song, it's quite adventurous for that yeah. era, right? I mean, yeah. that is not your standard pop song by any means. No. So, I mean, if that was too poppy, I mean, God... God God knows what would have what what he would have thought about some of the other stuff, but you know we all know that his tastes kind of changed as he got older, anyway, right? So, but he was always blues guy first and foremost, a, and the guy who replaced him. Let's talk about him because he was no slouch, right? He's Jeff a, Beck. He was a pretty good guitarist. So I was going to pick "Heart Full of Soul," and, and that was the other song I was deciding between. They're they're yeah, both yeah, they're both great, right? And they were such a great and innovative band, way ahead of their time. And Jimmy Page was also in the band. Like, is any other band compared to them in terms it's of like sick, three right? separately guitarists? Like we talked about Clapton going to Mayo. And that's the only band I can think of, right? They had not only Clapton, but Peter Green and Mick Taylor, right? But still. The only, the only comparable is uh, Ozzy, Theo, and uh, Gillian for Sabbath. Same same role. Interesting. Yeah. 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 But the reason I would have picked Heartful of Soul is I just think it's more intense. And 
And just kind of as a tribute to Jeff Beck, right, who recently passed away. And this is how amazing the guy was, right? The band wanted to get a sit-talk for the song, and they couldn't, right? So he's just like, you know what? We don't need no stinking sitars. I'll just make my guitar sound like a sitar. And he fucking nailed it. Yeah, and and I I did go back and forth. The reason I I, I picked For Your Love is because it's so distinct. It's so different from other stuff because of that, that harpsichord sound, right? Yeah, they had that kind of Middle Eastern overtones, which Led yeah. Zeppelin would take. Led Zeppelin was originally called the New Yardbirds, so obviously there is that connection between the bands. And I think they're a band who's kind of also been forgotten by time. They're remembered for their three guitarists, but not for how great they were and, and the contributions of the other guys. Like Keith Ralph was a really compelling singer. And talking British Invasion, right, you could have went with several animal songs we couldn't pick cast of the rising sun from 64 yeah but the animal you can see you can hear sort of the you know similarity between the animals and, and the odd birds absolutely and the animals have great tracks in 65 also you could, there's a couple yeah but the one track if you're yeah. gonna pick like and again there's um i don't know you sort of forget how impactful the animals and the kinks were in 64 yeah i was going to mention the kinks too yep and i think you were going to say i'm going to guess don't let me be misunderstood mm-hmm. right is that the one but you could go we got to get out of this place it's my life right they're all classics and don't let me be misunderstood shout out to joe cocker he did a fucking great version of that nina simone did a great version of that as well but yeah, the Yardbirds were great. And both of those songs that we talked about, For Your Love and Heart for Soul, both written by Graham Gouldman later in 10CC. So another interesting bit of trivia there. Great song. Great band. He was there. He was For Your Love. And then later on, he was not in love. He was not in love. <laughs> oh, no. He also talked about the things we do for love. He, he did. <laughs> Come on, it would be a good MNU... Uh... Cast, yeah, so we didn't have a couple of inside music nerd jokes. Oh, that's good. Good stuff. Good stuff. All, right. All right. Take us home. All right. That's it for this episode. Hope everyone enjoyed this song draft of the best songs of 1965. Have a good night, everyone. Night, everybody. Hasta. Okay. Outro song time. Keith and I are swapping outros. I'm doing 1965, and he's going to do 1966. This is because I'm dedicating this outro song to my lovely wife, Leanne, who I'll very soon be celebrating 25 years of marriage with, and hopefully 25 more plus. This beautiful ballad was our wedding song, so obviously it holds a special place in my heart. It's one of the greatest Blue-Eyed Soul songs ever, with a tremendously vocal performance. It was produced by a brilliant, it's insane producer, who helped provide the song with his signature wall of sound. And of course, the song got a second life many years later due to a popular movie. And the song was actually an old, much-covered song by the time these guys got to it. And it's been much-covered since. But this is easily the definitive version of the song. Time.